Today's Bible reading is from Luke chapter 4 on page 1030 and it's also on the overheads starting at verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? they asked. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the sky was shut for three and a half years, and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built, in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Then he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee. And on the Sabbath he taught the people. They were amazed at his teaching, because his words had authority. In the synagogue there was a man possessed by a demon, an impure spirit. He cried at the top of his voice, Go away! What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. Then the demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring him. All the people were amazed and said to each other, What words these are! With authority and power he gives orders to impure spirits and they come out. And the news about him spread throughout the surrounding area. Jesus left the synagogue and went to the home of Simon. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever and they asked Jesus to help her. So he bent over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. She got up at once and began to wait on them. At sunset, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness, and laying his hands on each one, he healed them. Moreover, demons came out of many people, shouting, You are the Son of God! But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew he was the Messiah. At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him, and when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said, 
I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Thank you, and good morning, and welcome, uh, particularly if you're visiting us. It's always great to have visitors. Um, but because I am still kind of feel a bit like a visitor, I've only been here a few weeks, I'm not sure who the visitors and the regulars are, so um, come and say day to me afterwards. It'd be lovely to meet you, um, but uh, lovely to have us all here together today to look at the Word of God. Um, you'll see I've done a what may hopefully won't become a typical, particularly useful um, sermon outline here. It sounds like we're just sort of going nowhere, but uh, I will give you some points as we go. Well, uh, as we look at, um, at the Word of God, why don't we ask God by His Spirit to work in us and to, to teach us and show us things He wants us to know. Let's pray. Our loving Father, we thank You that You gather Your people together and that uh, You've gathered us here before Your Word. We thank You that Your Word is life for us. We pray for Your Spirit's help in understanding Uh, but also applying. Please challenge us where we need to be challenged and encourage us where we need to be encouraged and and make us wise. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's Australia Day. Happy Australia Day. Do we say that? Do we say Happy Australia Day? I don't know. I mean, it's tricky, isn't it, Australia Day? Uh, What do you think Jesus would say about Australia Day? You'll have noticed that this is an increasingly divisive topic in recent years. Different groups, for different reasons, have different ideas of what January 26 represents. What would Jesus say? Would he say January 26 should be all about flags and barbecues? I'm looking forward to a barbecue this afternoon. Maybe it's about, it's about a day to rest and enjoy our beautiful country, maybe attend an event. Give thanks for our lifestyle, freedoms, national identity. Well, you know, I don't think he would object to a national festival uh, or to gathering with friends to eat and enjoy good times. And he most certainly would not object to giving thanks for good things. But for several decades now, January 26 has also been called Invasion Day by groups of Aboriginal people and from what seems to be a steadily, a steadily growing group of sympathisers throughout the wider community. From the perspective of the culture and history of our First Nations, January 26, 1788 was the beginning of the dismantling and the disenfranchising and the disease that has devastated their peoples. Although as I think about it, the idea of invasion might be putting it nicely because the official British government policy in the eastern states at least was that this land was terra nullius. I'm sure you've heard this. Empty land. There was no one here apparently. Nothing to invade. Go on, just settle it. We are talking about non-existent peoples, peoples without culture, without history, without land without a voice. Now, South Australian settlement was a little different. They didn't have that policy, but the government still ignored the, the, the rights or whatever. Um, that, and th- this whole thing ended up being a big disaster and the peoples were still wiped out within a few generations. What would Jesus say? 
Today I want to suggest to you that at the heart of Jesus' mission was the goal of reconciliation. And as we know, many of our questions today on these issues of indigenous and non-indigenous relationships, they focus around this question of reconciliation. To what extent is it necessary or even possible? Now this is talk three in a three-part January series that doesn't necessarily involve Australia Day. Uh, The series is called What Christianity is About. And we've been looking at these two chapters in Luke's Gospel, chapter 3 and 4. So it's primarily a talk about Jesus and Christianity. After all, the reconciliation that he provides is for all peoples, all tribes, all nations, all languages. And yet on Australia Day, it's hard to ignore the problems in our own land. So we will have a think about some of those implications for us in particular. So as we look at what Jesus did, that's what we're getting at today, our starting point is his manifesto. So I have three points today. The first point is manifesto against oppression. Point one, manifesto against oppression. According to the Oxford Dictionary, a manifesto is a public declaration of policy and aims. Often political parties uh, or movements will publish their manifesto. But you you often don't see it from mainstream political parties these days. They, They will prefer the term policy platform because a manifesto can give that impression of being alternative uh, or or worse, being radical. Think of the communist manifesto or think of the manifesto of a terrorist which is found on his Facebook profile after the carnage is done. But what Jesus reveals here in the Nazareth synagogue is often called his manifesto. It's more than a policy platform. It's alternative. It's radical. It's even subversive. And what better place to kick off things for Jesus than in the town that he grew up? Childhood friendships, aunties and uncles, and all the people who once wished him well and thought he was such a fine young lad. Well, Jesus stands up in the Nazareth synagogue and reads from the prophet Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then, says Luke, Jesus rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. You could hear a pin drop is what Luke is saying. Jesus began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Big moment and initially it goes very well. Jesus is proclaiming himself to be a biblically promised liberator. If you're an oppressed person, rejoice. If you're an oppressor, beware. The liberator is here. Now, if you put the word liberator into Google Images, uh, you'll see handguns and bombing aircraft. I don't know if that's what you thought you'd see. Um, A whole lot of other things as well. If you look up films and books with the theme of liberator, they'll often have military action. If you look at the individuals and groups listed as liberators by Wikipedia, 
you'll find emperors and statesmen, assassins and military divisions. Does this align with the Jesus we know? He tells his listeners that he's busting out the prisoners. He's giving good news to poor people, setting free the oppressed. Now, as we'll see in our next point in a few minutes, there are some deep spiritual causes of the oppression that humans face. But I think if we're interested in Jesus as our Lord and our Savior, then we have to look carefully for signs of oppression around us. And if we see oppression, we can see clearly, can we see clearly the oppressed and the oppressors? Because Jesus is telling us that he is on the side of the oppressed. He sets free the oppressed. He exalts the downtrodden. He is not interested in maintaining the status quo. Any peace that is based on other people's peril is not his kind of peace. I was recently watching um, with Ali a drama on um, a set in America um, before the Civil War, so a couple of hundred years ago, where the slaves uh, who had been shipped from Africa were the workhorses and the, the building. They were the ones who were providing for the building of the wealth of the white settlers. And the blacks had no human rights and they certainly had no wealth. And yet they harvested and they labored. They poured out their sweat and their blood. And they, they worked on these white people's properties and they built their houses and they built their roads for them and they built their wealth for them. And the prosperity of white America was being built on the peril of black America. And I couldn't help thinking about our situation here in Australia. This little old penal colony, they sent all the riffraff here, but look where we've got ourselves today. It's incredible. You know, according to the World Population Review, Australia's doing pretty well in terms of standard of living. You know where we come on the list, don't you? A couple of hundred countries. We're number four. That's amazing. How did we do this? It's incredible. You know, perhaps we've seen... Um, a near-perfect balance of international connections, we've had some good ones, balanced with independence. Perhaps we've had a perfect balance of natural resources and human resourcefulness. Perhaps there's been the perfect balance of galvanizing <coughs> military involvement for our nation overseas and yet peace on our shores. Now, we'll all have our theories, you know, how did we get to number four? It's a really good question, and I, I'm, I don't know. But whatever it is, it's not the whole picture, is it? Because I, I just don't think our Aboriginal neighbours and friends would quite see it the same way. You don't have to listen to many of their stories to, to hear of systematic injustice, to hear of vastly different lifestyle and health outcomes and life expectancy outcomes and widespread social breakdown. They'd say, number four, really? Now, I'm not saying there is any easy solution here. And this is not really, again, this is not a talk on the Aboriginal issues. But, you know, the, the reality is they are often blamed for their own problems. Get off the drink. Learn to look after your own family. But perhaps the problems that we face are deep. 
Perhaps there are some long-term systematic causes. I just hope we haven't built our prosperity on the back of their peril. Jesus comes as the liberator. And he is our Lord, Church of God. So what does he think about this situation? Point one, Jesus reveals a manifesto against oppression. Point two, power against oppressors. Did you know that in some ways Jesus' ministry was quite disappointing for many of the Jews of his day? I mean, we see the beginning of it in this story. Uh, They knew that passage from uh, Isaiah 61, but they understood that what that was about is God's promise to their nation to liberate them from the nations around them who were oppressing them. Their poverty was a a national poverty as much as individualized poverty. And the oppressor of the day was Rome. But Jesus never even criticized Rome in his ministry. He said, look on the coin, that's Caesar's face. It belongs to him, give it to him. Let alone did Jesus raise an army against them or use supernatural power to peel away their grip from Israel. What's more, this Nazareth encounter seems to have been a complete public relations disaster for Jesus. They turn on him because he talks about how God has revealed his power to other nations. What? He tells them that the great Jewish prophets, Elijah and Elisha, well, they used their powers to provide for people in need, but the people that he, he mentions are Gentiles. They're not even Jews, and these Nazareth residents don't like it. So they get up and they chase him out of town, and it's nearly all over for Jesus. They get to the local cliff. They're about to throw him off. Somehow, he just walks through the crowd. He survived, but it's not like he now has an army of patriots going around with him. What he does instead is he goes to another town. He goes to Capernaum, down by the river, down by the lake, I should say. And again, he goes straight to the synagogue and teaches. And this time, he's in the synagogue and he's confronted by a screaming man. Have you had a screaming man here in church ever? I I have been in churches where you have have screaming men. It sort of dominates proceedings. Um, And uh, Luke tells us that this man was possessed by a demon, an impure spirit. Go away, he yells at Jesus. What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, I don't know about you, whether you've had anything to do with people making connections with the dead or with fortune tellers or with evil spirits. The spirit world is frightening and difficult for us to understand. But for Jesus, at least, this situation is very clear and not frightening at all. He snaps right back and says, be quiet, come out of him. Now, I have kids and it's the end of the school holidays. And uh, so, you know, we we have a lot of negotiations and a lot of, you know, good rationales for doing the things that I'm asking you to do, kids. Um, But usually they, they do find it difficult to do the first time what I asked them to do. 
It's just part of being a kid. Uh, sometimes a stern word can be more effective. But here in the synagogue in Capernaum, there's no struggle. Just immediate submission. No argument. No resistance. Even the man ends up on the floor, but the, the spirit is unable to injure him. This man Jesus has spoken and the evil spirit has had no choice but to do exactly as Jesus has said. And the people are watching and they're gobsmacked and they say, what words these are. With authority and power, he gives orders to impure spirits and they come out. And so there is, there is this frightening world of unknown power and influence and control over people and it's in the background of human life. And Jesus can totally control it and just with the simplest of words. And it's right in front of them all. Uh, he hasn't, doesn't have to raise any kind of force. He's just liberated this oppressed man. The demon is right. He has come to destroy them. And this is just a warning shot. Jesus never speaks to people this way. Even when he's rebuking the hypocrites and he has no time for them. But even then, or when he's circle, encircled by those who've come to kill him, he never exercises his power over them. One of his disciples strikes the servant of the high priest with a sword and Jesus rebukes the disciple and says, do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Jesus could make mincemeat of the Roman armies just as the angels did with the Assyrian armies in the Old Testament. But Jesus never lifts a finger. Why? Because they are not the oppressors that he has come to liberate them from. There is a spiritual reality of oppression of the human race. And these exorcism encounters are just the beginning of what Jesus will do to them. It says that the devil has the power over us because of death. He has the power over us because of our sin. That means that we have death hanging over our heads and that is Satan's great power. Back to Luke 4. Jesus leaves the synagogue and goes to the home of Simon. His mother-in-law is suffering from a high fever. Very dangerous in those days without the kind of medical knowledge that we have today. What does Jesus do? This time he yells at the fever. And the fever leaves her. And she is immediately healthy. She begins to wait on them. Another oppressor vanquished with a word. So Jesus has this power and he's come to release the oppressed from the oppressors. But who are the prisoners that he's come to release? And who are the oppressed he's come to liberate? Who are the blind to whom he's come to give sight? And we come to point three. And point three is liberation through reconciliation. Liberation through reconciliation. So, so we need to step back and think about the human problem. Is the problem each other? We can sometimes feel that, can't we? 
Because surely if it is, Jesus can just wipe out the problem people and then the rest of us, you know, hopefully we're on the good side, the rest of us can just get on with enjoying life, right? In one sense, yes, the problem is each other because we all continually sin against each other. Not saying we don't treat each other well at times. Uh, but in one way or another, we oppress each other too, both interpersonally with our selfishness and corporately with the collective decisions from which we benefit. The reality is that all of us in some way are an oppressor at some time. There's no one who doesn't do this. Now you might think, hang on, come on. There's lots of very kind people in the world. We're not going to call them oppressors, are we? Really? But you know, you've... You find the kindest person in town and go and ask them whether they have a darker side, whether they have a selfish side. What are they going to tell you? They're going to say, yes, yes, of course I do. And if they don't, they're being dishonest anyway. And that's because humility and awareness of our, of our failings and our shortcomings, it goes hand in hand with being a good person. Now, the human problem entangles us all we are all in trouble because we have something of the oppressor in us. We take comfort. We'll take comfort because we want comfort. We'll, maybe we'll take control because we want control, even if it comes at the cost of another. And sometimes we just don't really want to think about that. And there's so much sin in the world that it's impossible for us all not to be in some ways entangled in it. But there's another side to the coin. Yes, we are and we have oppression in us. But in John 8, Jesus says these extraordinary words. He says, anyone who sins is a slave to sinner. Sorry, a slave to sin. Anyone who sins is a slave to sin. That means sinner equals slave. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Because all the way along, we've been thinking along the lines that sinner equals oppressor. And that's true too, we've just been talking about it. Our sin is the means by which others are oppressed. But Jesus says anyone who sins is a slave to sin. If you sin, you are oppressed. There is a reality to our sin that we can't see, but he can. And it's not just a metaphorical oppression. There is, actually an, there, there is an actual oppression as well. Have a listen to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Jesus shared in our humanity so that by his death he may break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. The devil holds death over us. Without Christ, we are under the devil's power. A sinner must face death and that's exactly how Satan wants you. He wants you dead. And so there is for us complete powerlessness. Except that Jesus demonstrated his power over evil spirits by casting them out. Okay, so we are the, the oppressor, but we are also the oppressed. Being a slave, being an oppressed one is not the end of the world though, because you are the ones for whom Jesus came. Remember the manifesto. He came for the oppressed. He came to set us free. John 8, 
also says, the same passage that says if, you're a sin, if you sin, you're a slave to sin, in the same chapter, Jesus says, if the Son sets you free, then you will be free indeed, really free, in every sense. And so we come back to the question, what is Christianity about? And over these last three weeks, um, it's been in the background, but one of the answers we haven't spent much time thinking about yet is that Christianity is about God's love. feel silly for not mentioning it more christ comes into the world to liberate not one group of oppressed people from one group of oppressors but to liberate all people from the slavery to sin and death that we face if we will receive god's glorious liberator so you see jesus casting out the demon and casting out the fever tells us something very important. Whatever is your enemy is his enemy. He's on our side. He is here to help and he has the power. As Paul says to the Colossian Christians, this is Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, Jesus disarmed the spiritual powers and authorities. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross Jesus has come to liberate us because God loves us he wants us freed from this and so Jesus is the one to whom we must cling so what's all this have to do with reconciliation well that's what the cross is all about it's it's not a random act of selflessness as if we should all go and copy it it was a mighty victory the devil can no longer have his chains on us, binding us to certain death, because we are no longer oppressed by him. Jesus has taken our sin away. He's taken away the power of death over us. How can the devil have any power over us if we're no longer guilty before God? He can't accuse you. By bearing our sin, Jesus removes the spiritual oppressor and he heals the relationship between God and humanity. He heals the relationship, and that's what reconciliation is. Hear how Paul puts this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 and following. This is about reconciliation, the healing of relationship. Paul says, If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, because Christ remakes the world. It's a new creation. The old is gone. The new is here. It's all, kind of, it's all completely renewed. And all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So that's what we do as Christians, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he's committed to us the message of reconciliation. Restored relationship with God through faith in Christ, the great liberator, we are now no longer oppressors nor the oppressed. That's what he wants for his people. Well, conclusion, reconciliation in Australia. If Jesus has provided reconciliation with God for all those who call out to him as their liberator, then I think there are at least two significant implications for Australian life in the 21st century. Implication number one. 
Christianity is about reconciliation with God because of what Jesus has done. Christianity is about reconciliation with God because of what Jesus has done. As I've said over the last two weeks, God has intervened. As sinners, we were both oppressed and oppressors. But Jesus came to proclaim good news, freedom, through the conquering of our great enemies, sin, the devil and death itself. He's restored our relationship to him. Jesus has reconciled us to God. But we need to repent and turn to him in dependence and trust. And we need to tell others of the great news too, that they too can be reconciled to God if they repent and trust in Jesus. So what's the implication for contemporary Australia? The gospel. The gospel of this wonderful reconciliation, of the triumph of God. Australia needs this message because at the heart of the problems of all the relationship and and trouble in our land is the relationship trouble we have with God. But through the gospel... God heals that relationship. And so we need to tell it. Implication two, Christianity is about reconciliation with each other because of what Jesus has done. So firstly, it was about reconciliation with God, but it's also about reconciliation with each other. God has intervened not only to fix the relationship with himself, but also to give eternal relationships to each other. And so therefore our relationships with each other are precious. Christ died so that we might be at one with each other. And we do good to one another and for one another, not only to the household of faith, but to all people. Because all people are of infinite value in God's eyes. So then what about reconciliation with the Aboriginal people? Seems like a good idea, don't you think? How, how that happens, this is not the place to work that out. It doesn't come without complications. The local tribes here in South Australia had a, a rough time just as the tribes did on the eastern states. And yet there are their descendants who live amongst us. How well do you know the Aboriginal people around? I, I don't know. Do you know any Aboriginal words? Do you know any Aboriginal people? you know any of the Aboriginal history? Just last night, Ali and I started watching a really interesting show on SBS. It's on Catch Up. First Australians. Has anyone seen First Australians? Really good, you know, really good thing to have a look at, just to hear the stories and to familiarise ourselves with the situation and the history. Like any restoration of relationship, uh, relationships require initiative, and they require humility, and they require love. Well, to wind up this little mini-series on what Christianity is about, it's about the real world into which God speaks, calling us to repent in light of the coming of Christ. That was the first week. Second week, it's about Christ who has rightful ownership and authority over the whole universe, not just because he is God, but also because he is God's man. And today it is about, Christianity is about what Christ did. Reconciling humanity to God and calling us to be reconciled with each other. 
Brothers and sisters, the faith that binds us together is frankly extraordinary. It is life-changing. There are billions of people in the world who believe in this. Billions of people throughout history. It is powerful and is accessible to all. And we mustn't be discouraged by the, the loud voices of secularism. Because what we have is a message of salvation, a message of liberation for the oppressed and for the oppressor. It's something the whole world needs to hear, which leads me to the unstoppable mission of Jesus, which is the title of our next sermon series on Acts. And we'll look at this whole question of this message and how it goes out from Jerusalem and to the ends of the earth when we open up the book of Acts next week. Well, with that in mind, let's, let's bring these things to God in prayer. Our loving Father, thank you for revealing your love to us in the gospel. We thank you that you sent your Son to walk among us, to be the man that we were unable to be, and Lord, as we've seen today, to be the one who sets free the oppressed and who even provides forgiveness for the oppressor, for we are both. And Lord God, we pray that you would please um, stir our hearts once again with the joy of this gospel and give us a great encouragement and an overflowing mouth that pours out the praise of Christ, our great Lord and Reconciler. Our Father, we thank you that you have not held our sins against us. We thank you that you have wiped them out taking away any power that Satan has over us. Help us to walk boldly and courageously in light of Christ's great power and his great victory. And Lord, give us what we need for proclaiming this gospel in the families and communities and workplaces and neighborhoods in which we move. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.